Our worship focus is Psalm 31, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me, guide me. Let's go to the Lord, our rock and our refuge and our fortress uh, in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, our God and Redeemer, we come to you today, the keeper of your many promises. It's a privilege to come into your presence and be guaranteed to have our prayers heard. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to place our hope and our future in your hands. Give us the courage and the confidence to know that you will not let us be put to shame, but will share with us your righteousness on the day we stand in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, GLC, and all those who are joining us online. We're so thankful that you are here and taking up this opportunity to study God's Word together with us. I'm uh, so glad that we live in this current time when we have this kind of technology and we can do this kind of thing with the whole coronavirus and sheltering in place. It can be difficult to know how to continue to gather and fellowship as a church. And so um, hopefully this is a, a blessing as we continue to go through our study here in Colossians. Hopefully uh, you are challenged by God's word and challenged by his truth and allow that to soak into your life. And even if it's just your family that's around you that benefits from it, I'm sure they will benefit greatly from you applying God's truth to your life. I want to thank Roger for reading our call to worship and praying for us and getting us started today. Hopefully you've taken advantage of some of the songs on the song list that we sent out to just encourage your heart and, and worship God as you prepare uh, to study his word. Um, but before we get into our Colossians study, we do want to take some time to pray. So if you would join me in praying, I'd appreciate that. Father, we come to you and we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together, even though it is remotely, to gather together as your people to study your word. And we thank you that we are not the only ones who gather, um, but there are many others. And we want to pray for a number of our fellow churches who we are in relationship with. Lord, I want to pray for New Life Church in Lubumbashi and Pastor Seth there as they seek to serve you, as they seek to minister to their uh, community, uh, keep them safe through uh, the issues that are going on there uh, with this virus. We pray for those uh, as well who are further away, Gospel Hope Church in Atlanta with Pastor Ryan and Pastor Rod. Lord, use their time even remotely to to bring glory to your name, to, to for the word to be in their hearts, in their minds, and, and, and lived out through their hands and feet. Lord, we pray also for those who are close to us here, Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Kip, Faith Bible Church with Pastor Bob and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Jay, First Baptist Church with Pastor Vaughn, Iglesia Comunio Cielo with Pastor Manuel, Mosaic Community Church with Pastor Eric, um, Mission Bible with Pastors Errol, Pastor Brent, Pastor Eric, Pastor Carlos, Pastor Jason, Pastor David, Ridgewood Baptist with Pastor Clint and Pastor Jonathan. We just ask that you would give blessing to their church as they gather whatever form that that takes remotely right now. Um, 
to bring you glory and to allow your word to, to be clearly presented and that truth to be settled in people's hearts. Lord, we pray this morning as we go into your word that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that as, as Christians, we would seek to live by it, live it out, uh, and, and not just be hearers only, but be doers of the word. But Lord, as, as others may have signed on who are, are not Christians, well, we pray today that they would see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would know him and that the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done would set them free from the domain of darkness, of sin and Satan and of eternal damnation. They would be set free because they have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That in his death on the cross, he redeems us. And we can put our faith and trust in him. We can turn from our sins and know that we have been brought from darkness into the kingdom of this beloved son. I pray that that would be true today of, of those non-Christians who are listening, that they would hear the gospel and they would trust in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. We're going to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in our study today is in verses 15 and 16. Now we've been in Colossians for just a little while now, and uh, the, the main idea of our Colossians study here is that it's a call to live all of life in thankfulness to God. So as Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, a church he had never been to, a church, people who he'd never met, um, he, his desire was to, to help them see the, the glorious goodness of God in their lives and what Jesus has done for them and rescuing them and transforming them and redeeming them and forgiving them. And in turn, his desire is that those kind of truths so affect our life that we overflow in this thankfulness, this satisfaction for what God has done for us. And when we use the term thankfulness, we're, we're, we try to distinguish it from that idea of being thankful that we were taught as little kids, where, where mom or dad would remind us, even if we didn't get the thing we wanted at Christmas or on our birthday, or when someone did something that, that was perceived to be kind, yet we didn't really appreciate it, they would always say, no, say thank you. and Or maybe when someone puts something on our plate that we don't like, like lima beans or something like that, um, black eyed peas or kidney beans or whatever it is. And we saw that and we were just like, and mom and dad would say, remember to say thank you. And so we'd begrudgingly say, thank you. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a begrudging thank you or a, I can't change the world I live in now, so I guess I better be thankful for it. No, this is a thankfulness that overflows from a satisfaction in who God is and what he's done for us. We are amazed by the fact that he has taken us from being slaves to sin and Satan and eternal death and brought us into his kingdom and into his family to be our father and us to be his children, to be our God and we to be his people and the opportunity to serve him no matter what it might look like should be joyously pleasing to us. Should we, it should be something we rest in, 
So even though we lose all things, and even if we lose our life itself, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of thankfulness we're seeking to live out. That's the challenge that Paul gives to the church at Colossae and the challenge that he gives to us as well. Now, as we've studied in Colossians chapter 1 so far, we've seen that he has addressed them as saints and faithful brothers who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in turn, that faith and trust in Jesus Christ has overflowed in spiritual life, mainly being seen in love. And then that spiritual life continues to be lived out. And then as we get towards verses uh, 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, we see we see his call for us to live in thankfulness because the Father has delivered us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Son has redeemed us, which brings forgiveness of sin. And as he, as he draws our attention to the beloved Son, so we come to this amazing uh, passage here on who Jesus Christ is. Often it's called a hymn of the early church on Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at verses 15 and 16. So if you turn there and you're ready, follow along as I read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is God's word. The main point this morning is this. You are to live in thankfulness to God because the beloved son is eternal and sovereign. You are to live in thankfulness to God because the beloved son is eternal and sovereign. Our desire is to see how Paul is seeking to, to display to us the glories of Jesus Christ. And so as, as he's now brought our attention to this kingdom, which is ruled by the beloved son, what is that king like? And so that's something that he probably assumes that the church in Colossae already knows to some degree. I mean, here are Christians who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what is he doing? He's trying to remind them of the kingdom they're now in and call them to lives of, of, of thankful expressions of satisfaction and worship in this beloved son. So like always, I have a number of questions that I want to ask to help us work through this text. The first question is this, how is Jesus the image of God. The text tells us that he is the image of God. It says right here, he is the image of the invisible God. So how, how is that the case? Well, I think it's important to understand that we have two words here that, that seem to be somewhat, somewhat kind of uh, on the opposite ends, contradictory maybe to a degree. Here's Jesus as an image, something we see, something that's visible, of what? The invisible God. He is the one who makes the invisible visible. Jesus is the one who reveals to us. He has come to reveal to us the glories and goodness of God. 
That's why when John is writing his gospel, he says that he describes Jesus in the very first chapter as the word of God, because Jesus is this revelation come to make the invisible visible. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a number of ways that we can understand this, because the, the next question, a follow-up question would be, how does Jesus make God visible? And there's, in church history, there's been some heretical views on this uh, that ultimately see Jesus as merely a manifestation of God, not, not a person in and of himself, but just a kind of a reflection of God. Uh, some, some have viewed him as just human, who then in, in his humanity reflects godness to some degree, maybe, maybe even to the degree of saying that... Um, like Adam was made in the image of God, so Jesus is the image of God. And in turn, Jesus is just that perfect image of humanity of God and denying his deity. Obviously, we, we can't go down those roads. It's clear in Scripture that Jesus is 100% God. He is truly God and truly 100% man. So we have to reject those ideas. And yet there is some truth in the fact that Jesus, as in human form, having incarnated himself, showed us what the perfect man looked like, showed us what the image of God was meant to look like in humanity. That's true. I mean, we looked at that at Christmas time last year in Hebrews chapter 2, how the writer of Hebrews there quotes the psalmist that, that men were made a little lower than the angels, yet crowned with glory and honor. And yet, where does he go with that? He goes to Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, for the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he might bring life to many sons and daughters. I mean, so Jesus does do that. But when we look at the context, we realize that his humanity is really not what is in view here. Paul really has in view his godness. And so we need to we need to understand in light of verse 16 where he describes Jesus as being the one who creates all things that we can't we can't negate his deity at all here. In fact, the image of God that is revealed to us in Jesus is actually meant to demonstrate his Deity. I mean, as you go through the Gospels and you read about what Jesus does, all the miracles he does, all the things he knows, how he knows people's very hearts and very thoughts, how he walks on water and calms the sea, how he raises the dead and then raises himself from the dead. It's hard to deny the fact that Jesus is more than just a mere man. And Jesus even claims deity. And so when we're asking, how is Jesus the image of God? Jesus makes the invisible visible, and he makes God visible to mankind. Um, now, one thing we could also consider in light of this, of Jesus making the invisible God visible, is, is Hebrews 1, 3. Uh, sometimes when a text is somewhat unclear, we can go to another text to help us to uh, understand it and interpret it. So when we go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we find here a wonderful description of how the Son makes the invisible God visible. And in verse 1, he says, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so we see here in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, a number of descriptors that help us understand how Jesus made the invisible God visible. And I have the three laid out there in the points. Uh, first of all, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He radiates the glory of God to us. We are able to see the glory. In fact, I mean, that's again what John 1 describes. He describes here is glory granted to us, glory seen by us. And the disciples even understand that eventually uh, after the resurrection, that the glory of God is being is on display for them. And then you go to, to a book like Revelation, and as John is confronted with the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, he is blown away in awe by him. This is glory that God will not share with any other, and yet it's glory that is maintained by the Father and by the Son. Also, it says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. Maybe when you read image, you think of a likeness to someone else. So maybe you uh, are watching a TV show. Uh, this happens to me all the time. And you see someone, maybe it's someone famous, maybe it's not someone famous. Uh, maybe you're watching a reality show and you see somebody, they look a lot like so-and-so. Man, they really remind me of them. They have a likeness to them. Well, that's not what we have in mind here when we're reading image of God. It's not just a likeness to him. It's rather what the writer of Hebrews says, this exact imprint, the character of God is exactly equally imprinted in the Son as it is in the Father. I mean, when we talk about the Trinity, we say that we believe there are three persons to God, uh, in one essence, they all share the same essence, yet they're three distinct persons. Yet that essence is not divided up between the three, but they all share it equally. Uh, the same idea here is in mind, this exact imprint of his nature. And then it's, it describes Jesus as being the one who is the wielder of all power. Jesus wields power like God wields power, which is exactly what we read here in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 16. What, is, what, is, what are we going to see? We're going to see that he is the one who creates all things. Everything is created by him. The kind of power that only God has is ascribed to Jesus Christ. So how is Jesus the image of God? He's the exact imprint, the radiance of his glory, the wielder of his power, who makes the invisible God visible to us. 
In fact, that's what Jesus tells his disciples when they asked him to reveal the Father to him. He says, have you not been with me this whole time? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the image of God. Question number two, how is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? Now, some people struggle with this because in, in church history, again, uh, there was a heresy that came about that viewed Jesus not as the creator, but rather as the first creation. And they used this idea of firstborn to defend that. Uh, but again, contextually, we have a problem and actually we have a problem with the, the understanding of firstborn itself. I mean, contextually, we see again in verse 16, Jesus is the one who creates all things. And so you begin to get into a problem of, of if he's created all things that have been created and he himself is created, that means he is self-created, which is an impossibility. I mean, when we understand, uh, when we understand these categories of creator and creation, we understand there's only two. There's only two categories. There's only creator and creation. And God falls in the category of creator. He's unique in that aspect in having created all things and spoken it out. It's, it's not to mean that someone can't create a song or someone can't create an invention, but, but what are they doing? They're using things that have been created to create in a different sense. But when we talk about categories of creator and creation, God's the only one who falls into the creator category. None of creation self-creates itself, but rather is created by the creator. Therefore, if Jesus is the one doing the creation, he cannot be uh, the creation as well. He has to be the creator. He falls into the category of God, who is self-sufficient, who is eternal, existing forever. We're going to see that as we go into this firstborn category. But also the word firstborn. Firstborn is used uh, uh, quite a bit in the Old Testament. And it's really an idea that, that encompasses a status. It's often linked with birth and birth order. And yet we find that there are significant areas in Scripture where birth order is kind of set aside. It's not even a concern but firstborn and status still exist. And so as we understand status of the firstborn, we understand it to signify at least two things. First of all, that someone is before other things. So as in the one who is considered before anyone else, he has the most significant role. And so, so he's the one who is considered, he's given preference over others, whether it's his brothers or sisters or whomever. In fact, we read that David was considered the firstborn of the kings. Now, he's not the first king that Israel ever had, but he is considered uh, this above or before others, uh, which is the second one, above other things, that one that has authority over others. So not as he just considered or given preference before, but he's also above others. So the, he has this role of authority. And when, you, when you're talking about in the household, there's an aspect in which, you know, considering Jacob and Esau or Ishmael and Isaac or even uh, Joseph and all of his brothers, many of them older than him, 
Uh, what do we see? We see the, the one who has the birthright and the one who has the status of the firstborn now is the one who is given authority. And so uh, you see that in Joseph. You see that with uh, Isaac. You see that with uh, Jacob, that ultimately they're the ones who have the authority and, and, and the privilege to uh, further God's people. Um, as we look at the text, we can see here that he is the firstborn of all creation, which means he has privilege, preference over all things. Not only that, he has authority over all things. Uh, he comes before all things. And so we could then point to the fact that Jesus is eternal, eternally existing with the God the Father and God the Spirit. It is before all things that God the Father looks upon his Son and sees in him something he does not see in anything else. He is immensely pleased with his Son. His preference is given to his Son over all things. But not only that, he's above all things, which means he is sovereign. He is eternal, given preference because he is the firstborn, but he's also sovereign over all creation, over everything. He commands all things. Authority is in his hands. So that's how Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Question number three, what are the reasons Paul gives for Jesus being eternal and sovereign? Jesus being this firstborn of all creation, who is the image of God. Well, we read here in verse 16 that it's by him that all things were created, right at the beginning, by him. And then at the end, he affirms it again, through him, all things are created. Jesus is the agent of creation. The son of God can rightly be called the creator, just like God the Father can rightly be called the creator, just like God the Holy Spirit can rightly be called the creator. Jesus, the Son of God, can rightly be called the creator because everything was created by him. I like what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, Christ is the eternal wisdom of the Father, and the world was made in wisdom. He is the eternal word, and the word was made and the world was made by the word of God. He is the arm of the Lord, and the world was made by that arm. Jesus is rightly and truly our creator. He goes on to say all things. Jesus creates everything. Seriously, there's no subdivision by the Trinity in the area of creation. When we come to salvation, we see that there's, there's like subdivided categories. The Father doesn't die on the cross. The Spirit doesn't die on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, the Son doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son. But when we come to creation, there's no subdivision there. The Trinity create all things so that Paul can rightly write here, Jesus created all things. Everything passed through the creative work of Jesus Christ. And notice, he gives us a, a bit of a listing here to help us understand what he means. He says, all things in heaven and on earth. 
the entirety of the cosmos passed through Jesus' hands. Whatever you can find on earth, whatever you can find in the heavens, and it doesn't have to be just this galaxy, it be any galaxy, passed through the hands of Jesus. That's why he, it says he knows the stars by name. They were all created by him. It's both visible and invisible. So the physical, the spiritual, the metaphysical, everything is created by Jesus. And then he says, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. These are very similar terms meant to cover every ruling power that exists and has ever existed, that ever will exist. There is no ruling power that is greater than the authority and sovereignty of Jesus Christ because he created them all. And it just affirms again the eternality of Jesus. He has to be before all things in order to create all things. He is eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit. And then in turn, it reaffirms his authority as well. We see in this term of the firstborn of all creation that he has created all authority, demonstrating that he is the supreme authority. And we would do right to submit to him. Question number four, why does Paul describe creation as for him? So we get to the end of verse 16 here. So we've seen that Jesus is the image of God, uh, the invisible God made visible to us. That he is the firstborn of creation. His eternality, his sovereignty is on display. And we've seen now that by him being the one who created all things, that again, his eternality is affirmed. His sovereignty is affirmed. Proof is given for it. Reasons for why Jesus has this eternality and sovereignty uh, ascribed to him by Paul is because he is the one who has brought about all that we know, all that we see, all that we feel. Everything has been brought about by him. And then at the very end of verse 16, he says, not only was it made through him, but it was made for him. These are two significant words for him, which tell us that Jesus is the ultimate purpose of all creation. Everything that exists was made for him. Oh, sometimes we can look up at the stars and we can say, thank you, Jesus, for making these stars so that I can enjoy them. And I, and I, I think he wants us to enjoy them. He wants us to know, thank you for these people that I'm spending all this time with in my home. He wants us to enjoy them. He wants us to, to benefit from it. Uh, thank you for the wonderful uh, day that we have to go on a walk and just get out for a little while. Uh, he wants us to enjoy. He wants us to benefit. But we must remember that all of this was not made ultimately for us. It was made for him. And the only way that we can truly understand all that was made is if we understand him. If we understand how it was made to bring him glory, how it was made to bring him praise, how it was made to bring him pleasure. He is the ultimate 
purpose of all things. But not only that, like connected to that, Jesus created all things in the exact manner that they are according to his pray, play, praise. Ooh, I can't say it. According to his praise and pleasure. The world is the way it is because it brought Jesus the most praise and pleasure. Oh, that's a concept that is hard to understand, that is hard to grasp. And, and, and it's not meant to convey that in its exact state right now, he's getting the most praise and pleasure from this world, but rather that in order to gain the most praise from it, that it has to go through the path that it goes through. That in order for it to accomplish and fulfill its purpose, it has to be this way. And, and we can think, man, what about sin? What about, what about the dominion of darkness of sin and of Satan? What about eternal death? What about this illness that's going on right now, this plague that is ravaging the earth? What about these kind of things? I mean, are you, are you saying that these things bring God pray, play? I can't say that word. Praise and pleasure? I'm not saying that in and of themselves they do. What I'm saying is that they lead to the future that brings about the most pray, praise and pleasure to God. They are the means by which God is the most glorified. But if you think about sin, how does God get glory in sin? He gets glory in sin by conquering it. If there were no sin in the world, how, how would we know love? Because we only know love because God sent his son to die for us, for our sins. God understood that in the 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 fullness of the plan that sin and suffering would have to occur. And that Jesus, Jesus himself in eternity past took on, was willing to embrace the role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who would be sent to do what? To suffer and to die. But it was the it was through the means of suffering, through the means of the cross, that Jesus is then what? Exalted and given a name above all names. And, and because of this, even though life may be difficult at times, even though we're facing this epidemic that is going on right now, we can still affirm that Jesus created all things in the exact manner they are according to his praise and pleasure. Yes. I got it right that time. Matthew Henry writes this, being created by him, they were created for him. Being made by his power, they were made according to his pleasure and for his praise. He is the end as well as the cause of all things. He's caused it all to come to be, but he's the reason for it. He is the purpose, the ultimate purpose that all things exist. He is the end. Everything, all of creation is driving to the end is Jesus Christ. So how can we connect this to everyday life? Well, first of all, 
recognize that the world around us only makes sense with Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the end, if Jesus is the goal, if Jesus is the ultimate purpose, then the world will only make ultimate sense, complete sense, if we have Jesus Christ, if we know Jesus Christ, if we understand Jesus Christ. I mean, we may be able to make sense of parts of it, but we cannot fit it all together unless we know the end, unless we know the purpose. And Jesus is the one who brings that purpose into our lives. He's the one who allows us to understand why everything was made, and in turn, to allow us to live out the purpose by which we were made. You see, when God created the world, he created it for his glory, and he proclaimed it as good. In fact, on the, on, on the sixth day of creation, he looked at all his creation and said, it is very good. He had placed man in the garden of his creation and, and tasked him uh, with, uh, with living out the responsibility of ruling over his creation. While we were made lower than the angels, yet we were crowned with glory and honor, that we were given this task of, of, of caring for God's creation. And yet, what do we read Adam and Eve when given the choice to live and follow God or live for their own desires and own heart, chose their own desires. They rebelled against God, sinned against him, broke his commandment. And in turn, they plunged all of humanity into this domain of darkness that we live in, ruled by sin and Satan and ultimately by eternal death. That was the promise of sin. If you eat of this tree that I commanded you not to eat, you will surely die. And ultimately, we were all destined to die, not just physically, but eternal separation from God forever. The God of joy and love and peace and goodness, separated from all of that for an eternity. And yet, Jesus was sent to redeem us, to forgive us of our sins and bring us back to God. That's why he came. He came so that we might have life in him. And so, so that, and that's what we need. In, in the domain of darkness, under the slavery of sin, we cannot exist the way we were created. We cannot fulfill our purpose for why we were made to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. We cannot do it. But through Jesus Christ, we can. Through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sins bought us back, and all who would put their faith and trust in him alone will be granted new life. Life that comes to live within us, that allows us to fulfill our purpose, to glorify God with our lives and enjoy him forever. It's only by his grace. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. It's only through faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus alone, nothing else can save us. There is no other redeemer. The world was not made for anyone else but for him. And he is the only one who can buy us back to that purpose. So we need to recognize that the world around us only makes sense with Jesus Christ. 
We need to live in light of that every day. The fact is the gospel isn't just for the people who've never heard it, people who haven't yet trusted in it. The gospel is for each of us. We need to be reminded that I was once in the domain of darkness, but now I've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son, and I want to live out this new life every moment. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I want to sin. I desire after it, and yet I need to be reminded through the gospel that I am a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works to live for him. This world makes sense with Jesus. But number two, another way we can connect these truths to everyday life is to know God by the image of Jesus Christ found in Scripture. Now there's, there's the images of God in the Old Testament, the, the pre-incarnated revelation of Jesus Christ to us, the words of God given through his prophets to us that we can understand. And then as we go up to the New Testament, we see this fullness, this revealing, this, this taking the words that were given to the prophets and like exploding them into like a, a thousand volume set in Jesus Christ. We must be careful, uh, maybe like two sides, two dangers that we could we need to avoid. One is maybe to think that we already know enough about God. God is infinite, eternal. There is so much more to know about him than we can even imagine. In fact, when John was finishing up the his gospel, what does he write? He says, if I, if I were to write all, I'm just summing it up, but if I were to write all the things that Jesus had done, Books could not hold it. And it's true, both in his life, but then as we consider Jesus, Jesus' life didn't start when he was born in a manger. Jesus, as the Son of God, has existed for eternity to consider and fathom all that Jesus is and has done for all eternity past. It's unfathomable. And so... So we need to avoid thinking that maybe we know enough about God. We don't. We need to continue to, to grow in our understanding of God. And, and one of the ways to do that is to look at the image of Jesus Christ who makes the invisible God visible to us. But there's also a danger uh, on the other side. So on this side, we would say, well, uh, you know, I feel like I, I know enough about God. But on the other side, we say, well, God is so infinite, so uh, uh, unfathomable. How could I know anything about him? How, how, could I, how could I even think that it's possible to know anything about him? He's just too big, too immense, um, too, too above us. And, and, and so why even try? Well, because God tells you to. Because God himself reveals himself to you. I mean, if God wasn't revealing himself to us, then I understand that. Like, there's no way for us to, to, to even reach up to God. I mean, that's what they were trying to do with the Tower of Babel. We'll build, build ourselves a tower up to God's so that we can understand it all. And there's just no way. It's too high. That's true. But here's the thing. God revealed himself to us. God sent the visible image of his invisibility so that we might know him. 
So there's arrogance on this side saying, I don't need to know any more about God. But there's arrogance on this side as well and saying, God, what you revealed is not enough, so I'm not going to pursue you. But let's not fall into either side, in either danger. Rather what? Let's know God through the image of Jesus Christ found in Scripture. Let's pursue him. Let's understand him, especially as we have some, some extra time possibly on our hands. Spend some time in God's word. Take out the Bible, turn off the Netflix, and know God through his word. And number three, express satisfaction in your eternal and sovereign creator, Jesus Christ. Again, we're meant to live in thankfulness to God every moment of every day. And so hopefully this, this passage of scripture has reminded you of the glory of Jesus Christ, how he is eternal, how he is sovereign, how he has created all things, even you. And that as you consider that, your heart wells up with thankfulness and satisfaction. Guess what? As the sovereign, eternal God, everything is in his hands. He's in control and we can trust in him. He's eternal. So he's not surprised by this temporal stuff that's going on right now, these temporal challenges that we're facing. He's eternal. He, he has existed beyond our understanding. And so we could trust in him. But he's also sovereign and lovingly sovereign. So sovereign that God the Father gave his son to die for us. How will he not give us all things? This is the kind of authority the, that the beloved son rules over his kingdom with. Loving, gracious, merciful, calling us to repentance when we sin giving us strength when we are under various trials so that we might endure under it and ultimately promising, promising us that if we are in his hand and his hand is in the Father's hand, no one will take us out of his hand ever. Nothing will separate us from his love. Why? Because all ruling powers only got their authority from the sovereign creator who created them. Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our love. And so express hearts of gratitude, thankfulness, satisfaction for such a glorious and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of our main point. You are to live in thankfulness to God because the beloved Son is eternal and sovereign. I hope that will be your experience today and throughout the rest of this week. And as you live, uh, as you live through this coronavirus experience, that you would find your rest, your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for joining us. I want to end our time here with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word that directs our heart. Uh, we thank you for the challenge today. Uh, what an amazing challenge it is to see Jesus Christ, our King, our prophet, our priest, who is eternal and sovereign. Lord, 
Eternality is difficult to comprehend. And yet, in that, he is so trustworthy. Sovereignty, and we, and we understand authority, and we often bristle against it, but Lord, let us, let us submit to this wonderful, glorious, loving authority of Jesus Christ. Let our hearts be directed to your love. And then in turn, let it be directed to your steadfastness. Lord, we, we find our solidity in life because we understand the purpose of life when we know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives us steadfastness. Oh Lord, let that be so uh, for each of us. Lord, as, as we continue to, to live through this epidemic, as we continue uh, to face uncertainty, may we, may we be directed to a love that comforts us in a love in which we can rest, in a steadfastness upon which we can stand. And that is only found in you. Oh, let it be so for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.